So welcome to the love chapter. It finds its way right here into 1 Corinthians. And as we go through, I hope you'll understand how it found its way into 1 Corinthians. It's the meaty part of the sandwich. Remember chapter 12 and chapter 14 have to do with the spiritual gifts. Those are the spiritual gift chapters. Chapter 15 is the resurrection chapter. We have that to look forward to coming up. But chapter 13 is the meat right there between these two spiritual gift passages. Paul says, we need to take a break. I need to discuss love in the context of ministry and service and spiritual power. We have to have this conversation on love. So the real advantage of being a Bible teacher is that I get to spend hours and hours just milling over, praying over, meditating on God's word. So this has been challenging me this week as I look and run my own life through the grid of 1 Corinthians 13 and what love really looks like in the life of a believer. Some say as Christians, we would do well to read this passage once a month. Others say, no, you should read it every week. And still others say, hey, every morning when you got a bed, you need to read this passage. It's just that important. So this morning I got up and I said, hey, Helga, I'm teaching on love this morning, so don't make me mad. <laughs> you know, I'm a product of the 80s era. That's when I was in my teens in the 80s. And how many of you were around during the 80s? How many of you remember an African-American singer named Tina Turner? And what's the song I'm thinking of? Oh, 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 what's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? What's love but a, what? Secondhand emotion, right? That is a terrible song. It's completely wrong. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, and there's no chapter break between 12 and 13. It's just falls flowing right into the next topic. The substance of chapter 13 is love has everything to do with it. And without love, Nothing else that we do as Christians, that we do as a church, no ministry we have, no outreach, no evangelism, no Bible teaching, no parenting conference. Without love, none of that matters. So I think this is a pretty important chapter, which is why I chose to say, let's go through this in two weeks. It's a short chapter, but I'm going to manage to stretch it for two weeks because before we actually get into the part of the chapter, we're going to spend just a little bit of time looking at agape love. The Greek word that's used most often in the Bible for love is the Greek word agape, agapao. And that's what we're going to talk about in a general sense as we move into the chapter. So with no chapter breaks, Paul goes from talking about spiritual gifts and some of the trouble and confusion it was causing in the church in Corinth. I mean, it was a charismatic church gone wild. They had lots of the gifts of the Spirit and all these things were operating, but they were placing and elevating some of the gifts above other gifts And some people were feeling superior and others were feeling inferior. And the very thing that was supposed to help them to care for each other was causing them, again, great harm to each other, jealousies, divisions, and all of that. So at the end of that chapter, Paul says, desire the spiritual gifts, but yet I show you a more excellent way. And that's his segue into chapter 13. That more excellent way is the way of agape, the way of love. Notice Paul didn't say the more excellent gift. So love is not a gift of God. It's a result of the Spirit of God in our lives. Because if he said, I show you a more excellent gift, some of you would say, well, that's not my gift. I mean, I got the gift of criticism, the gift of discouragement, but not the gift of love. That's for somebody else. My job is to show up, teach Bible study, and somebody else can love. And Paul doesn't give us that out. He says, love is the thing 
that unifies all of us and all of our ministry is connected by love. That's how the body works. A healthy body loves itself, cares for itself. The hand says, put the food in the mouth. The mouth opens to receive the food. The muscles and the esophagus all take it to the stomach and then it nourishes the whole body. There's this mutual care for the body. And that's what Paul wanted in Corinth. When one part of the body dominates and begins to suck all of the nutrients, all of the life from the body to sustain itself, do you know what we call that? We call that cancer. So Paul doesn't want to see any cancers in the body of Christ by people sucking all of the attention, all of the resources for their own needs. He wants to see us free to love and care for ourselves. You could call chapter 13 the rebuke chapter, because as we go through, you'll see that this list of behaviors, this list of actions that are connected with love are generated by all the things that the Corinthians were lacking. The Corinthian church was the anti-love church. And you'll see that as we go through one after the other of these characteristics are linked back to the behaviors that Paul was trying to address in the Corinthian church. So verse one, he begins with, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, agape love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. So as we open up even the discussion about love, we know that a dictionary doesn't tell us what words actually mean. Did you know that? A dictionary just tells you what words might mean or what words could mean. The only way to actually know what a word means is the context. I can tell you that I love my granddaughter. Can I tell you I'm really enjoying being a grandfather? But I also love riding bikes. But I love those two things in two radically different ways. So context really tells us what we're going to talk about when it comes to love. So oftentimes at this point in this passage, it's very common for pastors to say, well, there's four words in the Greek for love, and one is eros, and that's sensual love, and another is phileo, and that's brotherly love, or that's the love of fish. You go up to uh, McDonald's, you get a phileo fish. That's if you love fish. I know, that's bad. But that's how I remember it. Phileo, there's a family kind of love, and then there's this agape love that is said to be God's love for people, this love that comes from God, and it's unconditional, and it's sacrificial, and it only cares for the object, and it's not emotionally driven. But the reality is, is that when we come to the Bible, it's not that easy to paint these words with very strict definitions. Because in John 5.20 and in John 16.27, I'll read one of them. I'll read John 16.27. It says, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. This is Jesus speaking. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. Except the word there isn't agape. The word is phileo. It's that friendship, affectionate kind of love. So that can be used of the love between God the Father, God the Son, the love between Jesus and us as well. And there's other places where that shows up. By far, the word agapao or agape is used for love in the Bible. 117 times the word phileo, the brotherly sense of love, that's only used 25 times. So almost five times more is the word agape used. The other words, eros, storge, the other words for different kinds of love, they're really not used in the Bible at all. So these are the two words that really speak of love. But the important thing for the Apostle Paul is not how we strictly define the word in terms of a written definition, but really, what does it look like? Paul never defines 
love in chapter 13, but he shows it to us, he reveals it to us by showing us how it behaves. And that's what really matters. However you want to define it, what we'll learn about it is how it behaves. So just a few things so you know it. This word agape shows up in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his son. John 15.13, greater agape has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Give you a few others. I like this, 1 John 4.7. Dear friends, let us agape or let us love one another for love comes from God. For everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And one more, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So you build a definition for what this kind of godly love, the love that God looks for, the love that God gives, is expressed in all these various ways. Now there's a little issue with a couple of verses that kind of confuse our strict definition of agape. Second Timothy 4.10, this is Paul writing to Timothy. He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That's the word agape. And it's spoken of a love that a person can have for the world. So you take it out of its strict sense and we see that there's a passion or desire. Same word in 1 John 2.15, where John says, do not agape the world. Don't love the world, because if you love the world, then the agape or the love of the Father is not in you. So we can agape God and we can agape the world. What does that tell us about love? What it says is that agape also includes an internal passionate desire. I mean, can you think of someone who would typify for you someone who loves the world or the things of the world? I mean, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I mean, just going, going after it. Can you think of somebody? Do they do that dispassionately, casually? Or is there someone you know that is actually aggressively going after the things of the world? I mean, I want to make my first million before I'm 35. I want to accomplish this. I want to do that. I want to just suck in all that the world has to offer. Well, that's used of the word agape. So the one other thing I want to mention as we go into this discussion of agape is that I think in churches, we've been told, well, this agape love is this love that is disconnected from any type of internal feeling or desire or motivation. It's just a matter of the will. Just obey and do the loving thing. doesn't matter how you feel. But you know, desire and emotion are much stronger than your will. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, the things I will to do, I don't do. And the things I will not to do, that's what I do. He shows us the failure of willpower to produce change. So he cries out to God and he says, wretched man that I am, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? And you know what his answer is? It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Jesus Christ will rescue me from this body of death and my inability to actually do the things I want to do. And the next chapter is all about walking in the Spirit. So what happens is as we have and cultivate a relationship with God, God does something real in my heart so that my outside is not disconnected from my inside when I'm kind or when I love. You ever been to a place like that? You ever met people like that? Maybe your family where the words were said, where someone says, I love you, but the actions were completely dissociated or even the attitude was dissociated from the action. Anybody experience that? So that's not what God intends for the church. 
Paul said to the Romans, let love be without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy means to play act, to put on a face. Our love should be genuine. And love that's genuine starts with an internal desire, something that draws me toward loving you. Now, the difference is that the love of God, the feelings or the desires that are connected to that are not desires that are produced by what you do for me in whatever kind of love you want to talk about. You know, you've got certain people in your life that you're friends with and you're friends with them because they're like you. You like them, they like you, you have some common interest. There's something about them that you like. Then you're drawn to them and they draw out of you a love, a friendship love. Or even the sensual love, eros, where we get the word erotic. There's a sensuality that is, produces a feeling in me. It's something in you produces a feeling in me. But when it comes to agape love, the desire, the motivation that's internal doesn't come from anything that you produce for me. It's completely and utterly from what God produces in me. That's why we read this love comes from God. This kind of love, not as an occasional thing, not as a here a little, there a little thing, but this kind of love as a way of life only comes from God. Now we're all growing in it. You'll read this and you go, man, I'm twisted. Like, I don't love like that. But have you seen love grow in your life? I mean, just do me a favor real quick. Grab your bulletin and look on the back. There's a back to the bulletin? Yeah, there's a back to the bulletin. There's words there which you've long since ignored. Because it's there every week. And you go, I don't know what it says. Look down. You see the back? You see where it says at the bottom half, we believe the worship of God should be? Do you see that? Now look down the list. There's four things. Look at the fourth one. It says fruitful, correct? See, I'll read the first sentence. You read it along with me. We believe the worship of God should be fruitful. Therefore, we look for his love in our lives as the supreme manifestation that we have truly been worshiping him. Amen. That's what we believe. And that's what Paul is saying. Ultimately, it's this manifestation of love in our lives that without it, you can't claim to be a Christian. It is non-negotiable. You can't say, I love God, but hate my brother. God, I love you. It's those people I can't stand. And I just don't want to be around them. These do not go hand in hand. So when it comes to this agape love, the love we're talking about today, the love that you need to experience in your family, the love that you want to have in your marriage, what you have to know is this kind of love, you're going to have all these kinds of loves. You're going to have in a marriage a sensual kind of love. You're going to have a family kind of love. You're going to have a friendship, affectionate kind of love. And you need to have this kind of love, which is a love that comes from a deep desire and peace within me that draws me to wanting only to do good for the object of the love, no matter if I get anything in return or not. That's true love. I would call agape true love. It's not about how you make me feel. It's about how God makes me feel. God changes my desires. Can I just challenge you guys with one thing this morning? I'm going to challenge you with a lot of things, but here's my supposition. I believe that is actually and entirely the Christian normative experience. What we should be experiencing is to enjoy loving others. I think that there should be a great amount of joy connected with sacrificial love. You think when Jesus went to the cross, he said, man, this is a bummer. I mean, I love you, God, but those people, I can't stand them. But since God is love and since I'm love, well, 
I guess I have to do it. And he does it begrudgingly. I mean, how many of you have ever had someone love you grudgingly? I don't really want to do it, but I have to do it, so I'll do it. Forget it. Keep it. I don't need that. I don't need your charity in my life. I don't want that. But when someone loves you genuinely from their heart, you know it. Do you know the difference? Can you see the difference, church? Have you been to a church where you can see that, well, people don't really love? And I pray that that's not what happens to our church. I pray that we can continue to be a church where love is genuine. D.A. Carson, Bible commentator, said, if I must say in a few words what is distinctive about God's love, it is that it is self-originating. When a young man reveals with a passionate declaration, I love you, at least in part, he means that he finds the woman he loves to be lovely. At least some of his love is elicited by the object of that love. That's the difference. There's nothing that elicits that love. It comes from inside. And it's not grudging, and it doesn't complain, and it's not upset about having to do it. It does it joyfully. D.A. Carson goes on to say, that's how Christians learn to love. They learn to love with a love that is like God's, self-originating. As a Christian, you can't turn it off. Wouldn't that be great to be there? I can turn it down a lot. (laughs) But the purpose and the goal of God in our lives, he wants us to love people like he loves people. But when God wants to do something, when Jesus wants to do something, we are called the body of Christ. Am I right or am I wrong? Are we the body of Christ or are we not? That means when Christ says, I want to minister to somebody, I want to show mercy, he says, okay, how am I going to do it? I need your help to do it. I can't do it by myself. I have willed and accomplished this by working through my body. So when Jesus Christ wants to demonstrate the love of God to a broken and twisted world, how does he do it? He does it through people that have his character and will operate in the way he operates. And that's how he loves the church. Here, again, the Apostle Paul, quoting D.A. Carson, insisting that the indispensable proof of authentic Christianity is a life characterized by love, that is, by a passionate existence. So that the other part that I'm trying to communicate is that that love we have for one another is not a dissociation between my actions and my outward and my inward. That the inward God changes, and that produces the outward acts of love. If you're going, well, pastor, I ain't feeling it inward. Well, then you just need to get closer to Jesus. Just need to worship him more. This is what the fruit of the Spirit is, love, joy, peace. You can't will yourself. When's the last time you try to will yourself to have peace? Go ahead, try that. I will myself to have peace. Can't do it. How about joy? Can you will yourself to have joy? You have to have something, an attitude or something inside you has to change, but then now your emotions and your desires even change. How many of you found that as Christians, your desires changed? That's what happened to me. Like all of a sudden I found myself doing things and feeling things that I never felt before. Like I'm a bouncer in bars. My approach to you is usually to try to knock you out. But God had to do a work in my life. And he's changed that part of my heart. And that's what Paul is talking about here. In fact, The kind of love God speaks about for his people and his family involves an internal drive to do good for the other person, even at my own expense, with no expectation or need to receive anything in return. And if that wasn't the case, if it was all about just an act of the will and actions, then these first few verses in 1 Corinthians would be unnecessary. Look what Paul says. 
says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Speaking in tongues. Okay. What is that? If you haven't been around the church or haven't read your Bible very much, you might like, what speaking in tongues? What is that all about? This is the ability, the God-given ability, the demonstration of the Spirit of God that allows a person to speak or pray or sing in a language, a foreign language, a language that's foreign to them, one they've not learned or studied in school. That it's just, God does this. And there's some people in our church that have that gift. Not everybody has that gift, but some people do. And what Paul is saying is that in their church, they had elevated that gift because it's outward, it's obvious, it makes you look spiritual. The problem is it's also easy to imitate and easy to fake. So it's become elevated. Then all of them wanted that gift. And Paul says, look, though you can speak even with the tongues of men and angels, are there really angelic languages? It's a little unclear from this passage. There's nowhere else that talks about languages of angels. Paul may just be using exaggeration. Even if you could, I mean, imagine showing up to the prayer meeting and you're the guy who knows the language of angels. And people were just like, oh, Steve's at our prayer meeting. He speaks with heavenly angelic languages. Like, oh, everybody would say, whoa, that's awesome. He really knows how to pray. But Paul said, even if you could, even if that was a possibility, even if you did, but you didn't have love, what would that make of that gift? I have become, and Paul himself has this ability. Paul says, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Without love, that gift of speaking in that language just becomes a bunch of noise. Bunch of noise. Just an annoyance. It's not that the gift is wrong. The gift is good. But I botch it all up by lacking love when I minister with it. So just one final note again from D.A. Carson. You who insist that speaking in tongues attests a second work of the Spirit, a baptism of the Spirit, I tell you that if love does not characterize your life, there is not evidence of even a first work of the Spirit. Verse 2, he goes on and says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. First he said, I have become just a noisy person. Now he says, I can have all these things, I can have all these abilities, but if I don't have love, then I am still nothing. You see, I can study and I can pray and I can be used by God to speak to the multitudes. Look at that. He says, even if I could understand all mysteries, do you think anybody really understands on this side of heaven all mysteries? Please say no. And Paul's going to go on to say that at the end of chapter 13. Nobody gets it all here. We see like in a foggy mirror. We don't get it here. But even if you did, even if you understood all the intricacies of God, even if you could understand why in the world he loved us, that's the biggest mystery, isn't it? Biggest mystery is why in the world he loves you? Why in the world he loves me? But even if you understood that, I could have a PhD or a master's of divinity. I could write my whole dissertation on love. I can preach today's sermon on love and not have love. And it would be nothing. You would receive something from it, but I wouldn't. It says, I am nothing. The challenge with ministry for all of us, the challenge with using and operating and working and serving the Lord is when we think ministry makes me somebody. Ministry makes me something. Pastors fall prey to this mentality. Somehow the size of my church makes me something. 
Somehow the number of seats that are filled makes me something. Somehow the power that I preach with or the, the way I operate, the thing I do, it makes me something. And Paul says, no, without love, it's actually you're nothing. He even said, if you could have faith, you could remove mountains. You could level the place and, oh, there's a mountain in your way. I'll pray for you. I'll get that mountain moved. But if it just brings attention to you and not because you love that person, these things are not wrong. Prophecy is not wrong. Faith is not wrong. Understanding mysteries and knowledge is not wrong. I mean, I've met, listen, over the years of ministry, I have met some real oddballs. Anybody else in the church meet some real oddballs? I mean, every so often, hasn't happened in a while, but I'd have some wacko show up in my office. They've gotten some download from God, and now I need to know about it, and they need to speak to our church about it. There's no love. I mean, it's not love. You didn't come here with love in your heart. You came to show you got this download from God. You know these mysteries. It doesn't matter if you know all the end times things and all kinds of obscurities in the Bible. If you don't have love, nobody's going to want to hear what you have to say. For us as a church, you've come here from all different backgrounds, haven't you? You've come here from all different church backgrounds, and some of you have had places of service in your church. You've been deacons. You've been Bible study leaders. And sometimes you come to, wow, I've done this at my church, my last church, and and there's this expectation you're going to show up here and just going to, boom, right back into it. And then we put the brakes on. We say, whoa, whoa, we, we don't even know you. You don't know us. So let's get to know each other first. Spend about six months. Make sure we're who you think we are and you're who we think you are. And just take some time, listen carefully, and care about the people here without having a position or an official ministry. We care much less about all of your end times knowledge than I do about your ability to care for people. If you can care for people, then you can tell us about what you know about the end times, but not absent from caring for people. Love opens the door for ministry. Because again, we're saying, okay, what is love? Maybe love means I just do all these things for people. I just, I'm active by serving. Well, not without love. How about sacrifice? Maybe the key to love is just sacrificing. That's what I have to do. Look at verse three. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So there's a time and a place where you say, well, if I do these things, it's going to benefit me. I'm going to score points with God. People are going to think I'm spiritual and God is going to love me more. And if you come with that attitude, you couldn't be more wrong. God never loves you more. He is love. He can never love you less than sending his son to die for you. I mean, that's the culmination, that's how he shows his love for you. And he demonstrates that love for you, not when you get your act together, not when you become a good person, not when you have church attendance, not when you start tithing. He demonstrates that love for you while you're a sinner. I want to show you my love at the worst, lowest, most shameful time in your life. That's when I'm going to come to you and I'm going to show you the cross. I'm going to say, at this time in your life, when God came to me, my life, I was living in sin. Anybody else living in sin when God came to you? And he loved me right then. And so now I never have to question. If I fail, if I fall short, if I struggle against sin, I never have to question, does God still love me? But evidently there are those and there are times when people say, well, I just need to give everything I have to feed the poor. But the motivation is not love. Think about the Pharisees. You remember them from the Gospels? These religious guys? They would make a big deal out of tithing. 
And they'd make sure everybody knew, blow the trumpets, boot to do, look at me, giving. They would fast and they'd make themselves look all disheveled. What's going on with you today, Steve? I'm fasting. That's how much I love the Lord. I'm fasting. And then they would pray and, and they would pray, not because they were talking to God, but because they wanted to impress people. Oh, thou most holiest Father God, I lovest thou with a King James love. You're not talking to God. You're talking to people. You're trying to impress us. Stop trying to impress us. Why? Because it doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't score you points with us or with God. It just makes you look foolish. Even if I give my body to be burned and I have not love, even if I went to that extreme sacrifice, but the goal and the motive wasn't love. You see, the inside, listen carefully, the inside has to be connected to the action, to the outside. And that's what Paul's saying. Religion, religious zeal, and religious ritual never produce love and are never a substitute for it. Can I say that again? Religious zeal and religious ritual, no matter how tightly they're adhered to, are never a substitute for love and will never produce love in your life. The only place that love like this comes from is it's a work of the Spirit of God in the heart of a mankind that takes me from being utterly self-centered to utterly and unavoidably other-centered. The biggest thing I need in my life right now, I need unlovable people to love for Jesus' sake. That's what I need. That's what you need. That's why you come to church. You need hard-to-love people so you can love them with the love of Christ. I think Paul almost senses their shock as they recoil, maybe like you did. Like, what you, I'm nothing. I do all these things. I mean, I've grown up in church. I've done all these things. And you mean, if I don't have this consistent character of love in my life, then I'm nothing. I, it's all been a waste. That's exactly what Paul's saying. So he doesn't give a five-star theological definition. He just gives some practical examples that would be meaningful to them and to us. So I think he lowers his tone. He says, okay, listen, church, here's what love does. Love suffers long and is kind. Those two things go together. That's patient. There's two words in the Bible for patient. One word means to be patient under circumstances. You're going through a trial. It's really wearing on you. It's a difficult circumstance. It's something with your health. It's a job loss. It's a family thing. And you're, oh, this is so hard to endure. That's one type of trial. That's one type of patience. The other type of patience is with people. That, I think, is probably the more challenging type of patience. So this word, macrothumia, means to have a long fuse. You have a long fuse? When people wrong you, when people hurt you, do you brush it off fairly easy? Are you patient with people? This is the love that keeps us together. This is a love where I don't run away from you when you hurt me. I run towards you. Let me ask you a question. If your horn on your car had a vaporized button, how many of you would have vaporized entire school buses on Route 53. I mean, you're late. I'm busy. I got a place to be. I don't have time for this. I'm important. I'm going to be missed. And you just, yeah. How many of you are glad God didn't give us vaporizing eyes? Because at one point, someone was just so on your nerves. They were rubbing you the wrong way. And you just wanted to vaporize them with your eyes. See, I told you, I'm a work in progress, church. I am a work in progress. For me, it's the line at Walmart. There's a new cashier. She doesn't know what an avocado is. So she's looking it up on the thing. Avocado, avocado, it's an avocado. She doesn't know the number. There's a line of a hundred people. 
I've got somewhere to be. I gotta be at church. Come on, get on with it. Vaporize right there. And we laugh about it because we realize that it's an area we struggle with. Patience. We pray for patience. God gives us hard to love people. We don't run away from people. We don't run away from church. That's unloving. When people fail us, when people offend us, when people injure us, you got to throw away your go ahead, make my day, Clint Eastwood shirt. Got to get rid of that thing. It doesn't fit anymore. Is God long suffering? He is. He is. He's patient. He'd have vaporized me a long time ago for my sin if it wasn't for his long suffering. Matter of fact, we learned that in Second Peter. God is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is patiently waiting to bring his end times game to fruition because he wants you to get saved. He does not want you to face eternal judgment. And so he waits and he waits and he waits until there's no further people, until everybody is so cold, no one else is going to get saved. And so today, maybe is the day God is still waiting for you and he's long suffering. And while he's long suffering, he's also kind. Did you see that? Suffers long. This is what love does. Love is personified. When love is in you, it's not you doing it. It's love in you doing it. You go, where's this come from? Comes from love, God in me doing it. I can't explain it. You got to experience it. Okay, I'll put up with them, but that's it. I'm not going to be nice to them. But Paul said what love produces is kindness. Do you think Christians should be kind? Do you think a Christian, there's me in the line and I'm just chewing out the cashier and I'm just causing a fuss and causing a ruckus. And then I turned to the person next to me. I said, yeah, but Jesus is so loving. Well, you're not loving. Do you think kindness glorifies God? Absolutely. You think Jesus is kind? Yes, Jesus is kind. When the kindness of our Savior shows up. What about words? How about kind words? Anybody ever have someone use unkind words? Aren't kind words much better? So love suffers long and doesn't run the person down or speak evil about them. Love suffers long and is kind. How are we doing so far, church? Love does not envy. We did what love does. Now what love doesn't do. And this, by the way, applies to all ages. I just need to make that caveat. This, this love, it's not just adult love. Not just, you know, super Christian love. This is basic Christian love. There's only one kind of love, and this is it. Love does not envy. The Corinthians had some serious problems with envy. They were divided over teachers. Our teacher's better than your teacher, and they were dividing into factions, and they were envying the different gifts. We want that person's gift. That's the better gift, and we're jealous. And, oh, it was a terrible mess in Corinth. And Paul says, Corinthians, people in Fluvanna, When you find jealousy brewing in your heart, that means love is being squeezed out. When love comes back in through worship and through thinking on the word of God, then that pushes jealousy out. You recognize that I am what God has made me to be. He's given me what he wants me to have. I'm content with who I am. I have peace in my heart. And therefore, I can rejoice when you have something I don't. Jealousy is a form of hatred built on insecurity. Christianity is a form of love based on trustworthiness and complete security in the love of our Father. Love does not parade itself. It's not a bragging windbag. Know anybody like that? When someone is bragging about themselves, telling all the good things they've done, that person has to be the center of attention. That happens in church sometimes, doesn't it? We go, yeah, I'm not there yet. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still working on that one. I mean, I do that sometimes, but not all the time. 
this is really the good person test. If you thought you were a good person, you're going to leave here thinking, I am a wreck. Thanks a lot, pastor. I thought I was a good person until I came for the love chapter. I'm a mess. I'm twisted. But you still need a savior. And he's working a good work in us. He's going to bring it to completion. And in the meantime, his love is undying and unfailing for us. And it has covered all of our sins. Love does not parade itself like a bragging windbag. So you do something good or you give or you pray. And then everybody has to know about it. The minute you do that, you've ruined what you did. Because everybody has to know what you did. You know, you do this thing and then it shows up on Facebook or what I call brag book. Because we don't put the meals we blew on there. You only put the good things. Why are we so obsessed with food on Facebook? Why is that? Isn't that funny to anybody else? Look, I knock on Facebook a lot and I'm not knocking Facebook itself. It's got some wonderful uses. We have a Facebook page for our church and it's useful. But what it does is it opens the door for us to reveal a little something about ourselves. It opens the door for us in what we feel is a safe way to brag. Hey, look at me. Look what I'm doing. Everybody needs to know what I'm eating. I don't want to know what you're eating. I'm just trying to be honest here, trying to give you some help. Love is patience. <laughs> Love is not puffed up or arrogant. The Corinthians puffed up. Remember that in chapter 8? They were puffed up about their knowledge. Knowledge, Paul says to them, knowledge puffs up. Makes me like a blowfish, whoop, and sucked in air, like, oh, look how good I am, look how big I am. Knowledge puffs up. You ever met someone like that? They get all this Bible knowledge, they make you feel like a loser because you don't know where the book of Philippians is? Yeah, sorry, I'm, I've only been saved, you know, five years and I haven't memorized the song that you learn in Sunday school. But then you feel like a loser, and they make you feel like a loser because they have all this knowledge, and you go, oh, you know, forget it. It's frustrating, isn't it? So don't be arrogant. Other people aren't where you are. And if you've got some knowledge, then enjoy that knowledge, but don't make other people feel small by flaunting your knowledge. Did Jesus ever do that? Did he ever say to the disciples, you guys are losers, I'm done with you. I'm going to get another group. He stuck with them and he wasn't arrogant. He had knowledge. He knew he knew something, but he never paraded that around. Love does not behave rudely does not behave immodestly or improperly. This refers back to 1 Corinthians 11. Remember how they were at the communion table? Remember their behavior? It was an agape meal, but it was not an agape meal. It was an agape meal, but they were getting drunk and they were selfishly eating all the food, making other people feel ashamed and calling it an agape meal. And Paul is saying, look, love doesn't behave rudely. Love doesn't behave like you guys do at your agape meal. Love doesn't do that. And they're going, oh, Really? You think they're being convicted by this as they read it? Love is not embarrassing in its behavior. Love does not seek its own. We're generally self-centered. Our sin nature is to be self-centered. We want what's best for us. For them, they wanted the right. They were entitled to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Remember that back in chapter 8? We have the right to do it. And Paul says, but I want you to give up that right because it's going to hurt or stumble or affect negatively somebody else that Jesus loves. See, selfish love only loves to get. I only give to get. But selfless love gives and sacrifices and gives up for getting nothing in return but the satisfaction of having love. So love doesn't seek its own. J.I. Packer said there's nothing more irreligious than self-absorbed religion. So I want to share an important story with you about a family that I met that for me has always been in my life, this symbol, the picture, the image of selfless love. 
It's a family, they were from West Virginia. I met them when I was working at a school for kids with disabilities, mental and physical handicaps and emotional handicaps. And this couple had come because they adopted profoundly disabled children. And they were there to visit and prepare to adopt this young boy. I can't say his name, don't even remember his name. But he had severe and profound cerebral palsy. He was non-ambulatory, couldn't walk, he couldn't speak. He was blind because his heroin-addicted parents had put out cigars on his eyes to his blind, crippled, disabled, and would be for the rest of his life. And they showed up to adopt him. And I thought, you know, as I stood and met this family and talked with them, I said, this kid is never going to say the words, thank you. Not once. They are going to sacrifice their lives. They're going to give up vacations. They're going to give up freedom. They're going to give up all this. And they're never going to get a thank you. And he's never going to grow up to be a pro football player. And they're going to make a movie about him. Doesn't take away anything from there. It's just for me, this has been my picture of selfless love. That's not what it can get. This is the kind of love your marriage needs. Don't show up in a marriage for what you can get, but for what you can give. That's how this kind of love works. It's not provoked, never becomes exasperated with people. This is the love that says, I don't have any buttons. When's the last time you said to your kids, you're pushing my buttons? Well, if you had love, you wouldn't have buttons. But we go, oh, not there yet, pastor. Love takes away your buttons. Do you think Jesus had buttons? I mean, he did have buttons. He didn't like it. He goes and he overturns the tables at the money changers. There were things that Jesus got angry about, but he didn't fly off the handle because they pushed his buttons. He calculated and carefully and patiently went and did what he did. But for us, this is the idea of flying off the handle, losing our cool because you pushed my buttons. Jesus didn't say to the guys, hey guys, you're pushing my buttons. I can't imagine that. Love thinks no evil. This is the word logizomai, to enter something into a ledger book so it won't be forgotten. This is where we get love keeps no record of wrongs. How's that going the last time you had a good knockdown, drag out, sanctified discussion in your home? We don't call them arguments in church. It's a sanctified discussion. Not an argument. We weren't arguing on the way into church. It's a sanctified discussion. And every time you get to that place, all the past stuff comes back. You get the book out, boom. The book comes out, you open the page. 1975, do you remember what you said to me? In 1975, you said I was fat, you know? And oh, you're gonna bring that up, are you? Well, you did this. Oh, forgiveness requires love. And love requires forgiveness. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. There's no ledger book. What happens when love comes in is you take out the ledger book where you've recorded all that everybody owes you. That person owes me this, and that person owes me that. And you get out that ledger book, and you get out your eraser, and the next time you fight, and you want to open that ledger book, and there's still something in there to call back on, that's not allowed. That's off limits in a fight. You got to get out. You Hold on. We can't fight yet. I got to erase something first. And you're not allowed to bring it back up because you forgave it. If you forgave it, you can't bring it up. It doesn't exist anymore. It's been erased from the ledger. You no longer owe me for that thing. I can no longer punish you for that. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Sometimes the truth hurts, doesn't it? Sometimes when you come to church like today and you're hearing all this truth and you're going, oh, I feel convicted. That hurts, but we love it. We love it because it's truth. That's what love does in our hearts. We love truth. Even if it hurts us, even if it challenges us, we don't go, well, stop judging me. 
we say, hey, it's right. I am out of place. I am out of line. And that's true. And I love the truth. Love bears all things. Love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't go gossiping about something that happened. It doesn't go exposing the weakness of somebody else or exposing what someone did in the church. It patiently and quietly deals with these things. Love believes all things. Now that doesn't mean love is gullible. And just because someone tells me, oh, I love you, so I have to believe what you said. No, I can be discerning. But what this means is that love knows the possibilities. And therefore, love chooses to be optimistic rather than pessimistic. Love chooses to believe the potential of what God can do in a person's life. We may not see it yet, but I believe because I've seen it in my life. Therefore, I believe what God has done for me. I believe he can do it for you too. I believe I'm not unique. I believe I don't have any special connection to God that what he's done for me, oh, it's only for me that he can't do it for you. No, no, no. Love believes all things. I believe that you may be a jerk now, but someday you can be redeemed. I believe that you might be a selfish rascal now, but I really believe that if God got a hold of your life, man, that'd be awesome. Because that was my life. Love hopes all things. Love has a, an aspect of hopefulness to it. Notice all things, all things. Love endures all things. The word endurance there is the word we do use for circumstances. When there is love in a relationship, you know, when I do a wedding, oftentimes I read the vows. You know, do you take this person for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do his part? And a lot of times the person wants to answer. If we say, again, we go back, we say, well, is it rich or poor? Well, um, yes, no, yes, no, sickness up, no, yes. That's how I want to answer that. Yes, no, yes, no, no, yes. But when there's love, it means we're going to go through some stuff. And without love, and it drives us apart. This is what they discovered, the Hollies, 1969, their song, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. Do you know where that came from? There was a place called Boys Town, a community formed in 1917 in Omaha, Nebraska. It was a place for troubled or homeless boys could come and get help. And one day, the father, Edward Flanagan, who started this, saw a drawing of a boy carrying a younger boy on his back. And the caption was, he ain't heavy, mister. He's my brother. Well, this priest took that and he changed it to, he ain't heavy, father. He's my brother. And that became a logo for Boys and Girls Town. But that even goes back farther to actually a young boy that lived at Boys Town. And he was crippled and he wore leg braces. And oftentimes, he would see the other young boys pick him up and give him rides. They would just take turns giving him rides on their back. That's what it means when love endures all things. Love bears all things. The weight that we're enduring together is not heavy because there's love. 